We're continuing this morning with Jesus' farewell discourse, looking at the text we just read from John 16. Next week in John 17, Lord willing, we'll look at what has been known as Jesus' high priestly prayer. And what you have there is you have Jesus praying to the Father and no longer addressing his disciples. So in this text here in John 16, this is the last of Jesus' last words to the disciples. Before his passion, these are the last things he says to them. And so we'll make three points. They're there on the back inside page of the bulletin. Joy, prayer, and victory. Joy, prayer, and victory. So first, joy... So we're in John chapter 16. Jesus begins in verse 16. He says, in a little while, you'll see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. It's pretty straightforward. He's talking about his death. In a little while, you'll see me no more. And then his resurrection. After a little while, you'll see me again. But you can understand how confusing this might be to the disciples. Jesus has spoken to them about going away and preparing a place and sending the Spirit and coming back. And to them, it's all a little overwhelming, uh, especially because they're in a state of shock. Right? They, they've been told that there's a betrayer in their midst. They've left everything to follow Jesus. He's talking about going away. And so they're confused. You can see it in verse 17. They say this. What does he mean? By saying a little while and this and then a little while and that. And then they actually throw in something that Jesus didn't say here. But he said earlier. And what did he mean by saying, and because I go to the Father? They're terribly confused. They're they're like, I think we need a flow chart for this. All the coming and the going and the this and a little while this, a little while that. Maybe he could just like map it out for us. And verse 18, it's almost comical. It says they kept asking, meaning each other. They kept saying to each other, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. These are the guys who are going to give you your New Testament after the Holy Spirit comes. But right now, they're struggling. And Jesus knows they're struggling. And he asked them about it in verse 19. He says, are you asking one another what I mean by all this in a little while stuff? And obviously the answer is yes. That's what we've been asking each other. And so Jesus does something interesting here um, from a teaching point of view, I think. Um, He decides he's not going to try and straighten this all out for them. That he's not going to give them any flow charts. What he does is he speaks to their emotions. Right? He's going to tell them what they're about to experience. What is now confusion will very quickly become grief. So Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. It's a reference to the world's reaction to his death and their reaction to his death. The world rejoices, they'll weep and mourn. You will grieve, he says, you will grieve. But your grief will turn to joy. And that's a reference to the resurrection and the the new order of things that follow the resurrection. 
I mean, I think this is a very helpful bit of teaching. Jesus stoops down to us. He accommodates our weaknesses. They cannot figure out this coming and going stuff. Right? You remember earlier he said to Philip, Philip, in the same discourse, Philip, have I been with you so long? Like three years and you don't get this? So Jesus decides, okay, let's try this. You're going to feel A. And then after you feel A, you're going to feel B. Right? It shows our Lord's humility. It shows his kindness as a teacher. Right? You're going to have this set of emotions, grief. After that set of emotions, you're going to have another set of emotions, joy. So he's trying to prepare them. They don't really have to figure out the ascension and the sending of the Spirit and all that stuff right now. They have to brace themselves. You're going to have some nightmarish hours in front of you. They're right, in, they're right on top of you. But they are not the last word. You're, you are going to grieve. You don't need a lot of theology to understand that. You are about to grieve, and your grief is going to be turned into joy. He addresses their emotional life. And it's not just that joy, you know, after the joy there'll be grief. It's that grief is turned into joy. Notice that. It's transformed into joy. He's saying something like your joy is going to be deeper and more profound and more lasting precisely because of the grief. And here he's got his finger on something that is arguably unique to Christianity. This idea that suffering can be redemptive. It it draws us into the mystery of Christ's sufferings. It produces joy. Paul says these momentary light afflictions are producing for you an eternal weight of glory. They're they're not like getting in the way of glory. They're not something you have to negotiate around so you can get to the glory. The affliction produces glory. But the basic point is clear. The grief that you're about to experience is not going to last. It will become joy. In the Christian vision of things, the, the sorrows of the world are pregnant with joy. And Jesus, in fact, uses that analogy next of of a woman giving birth. She has pain, but when the baby's born, she forgets the anguish because of the joy that a child has come into the world. I mean, the anguish is not completely forgotten, of course, but it fades into the background. It's overshadowed by the joy. And, you know, Jesus knows of what he speaks in the sense that he experienced this order of things as your forerunner, right? Hebrews tells us, for the joy set before him. He endured the cross. For the joy set before him, he endured the grief of the cross. So he says in verse 22, so with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice. And then listen to what he says to the disciples. No one will take your joy from you. And later in this gospel, right, the risen Christ 
shows his hands to the disciples in his side. And the text says, and the disciples rejoiced to see the Lord. That's the fulfillment of this promise Jesus is making. And this, this is something more than simply a grief turned to joy or a suffering into triumph type of story. The transition Jesus is talking about involves the whole cosmos. Right? It involves the whole of the triune God saving purposes. He's got this little band of disciples and he's saying to them, you're standing at the pivot from darkness to light in the history of the world's redemption. This is the hour of darkness, the hour of Jesus' passion, and it is the hour of the turning of the ages into light. Because with his resurrection, with Jesus' resurrection, there comes a new order of things. right? A public and a permanently established triumph. That's what the resurrection is. It's public. It's a permanently established triumph over sin, over death, over the powers. And this is why, now please note this, this is why this joy here is indestructible and everlasting joy and no one can take it away. It's an astonishing thing that Jesus says here. And he, of course, he doesn't mean that the disciples will never be sad again or that they'll never mourn again in life. That would be ridiculous. But he does mean this for them and for you. Right? There is now, after the grief of Jesus' death, there is now an order of resurrection conquering joy. Have you ever thought of joy as an order of things? It's something like that that Jesus is getting at here. He's not saying you're never going to have sad feelings or bad days. He says you're going to live on the other side of the grief of the cross. You're going to live in the light of the resurrection. It's like if you move from one presidential, say, or one political administration to the next, you might feel exactly the same the day before and the day after. But as an objective matter of fact, you're now living in a new order. And because Jesus is risen, now you are living in the order of triumphant, indestructible joy, even on your worst day. Right? There's a sort of objective public thing that has happened here, and Jesus is declaring that. He is saying, this is a joy that can't be repressed, and it can't be overcome, and it can't be quenched by all the rivers of the world's sadness. Jesus is in resurrection glory this morning. He's very happy. Jesus does not get up and read the newspapers and say, this is really putting a damper on my resurrection joy. You know, the world is, I'm not one to minimize the enormity of the world's sadness and its grief. But this is a text that is meant to turn your way of looking at things, your proportion, around. Resurrection gladness, infinitely big, all the rivers of the world's sadness, inconsequential. 
If Jesus is risen, he's telling his disciples, then we must not, indeed we cannot be dour. That joyless Christianity then is some sort of oxymoron. It's, it's a failure to live out of the order that's been established. We're happy because Jesus is happy. And Jesus is not happy because you've performed particularly well this week. He's happy because he has conquered sin and death and the principalities and the powers and he lives in the new order of things. And so if he's risen, all will be well. All will be well. If you pick his resurrection triumph against your failures and your disappointments and your brokenness, he wins. He's not weighing them out. And so all will be well. Now, yes, the blows we suffer are real and they're bitter. But Jesus is telling his disciples they are only temporary. If he's risen, then the whole church is brought into an era of joy. And this joy is inalienable. Jesus says no one can take it away. It's a permanent mark. It's a property of the church. You know, traditionally, the church has spoken of the marks as one holy Catholic and apostolic. Jesus is saying resurrection joy is a mark of the church. So, that's joy. The second thing is prayer. Look at verse 23. Jesus says this, In that day, <coughs> in that day you'll no longer ask me anything. Right? He goes on to talk about this time shortly to arrive when the disciples will pray to the Father in Jesus' name. Right? It's interesting, right? Of course, up till this point, they could just ask Jesus questions. He was standing right in front of them. They could talk to him directly, but he says things are going to be different, right? In that day, the day of resurrection, the day that now is, you can ask the Father in my name, and he'll give you whatever you ask. He said this a couple of times in this upper room discourse, or things close to it. Ask the Father in the name of Jesus, you'll receive. Now, this is not a magic formula. It simply means that when we pray according to the will of Jesus revealed in Scripture, when we pray prayers that Jesus himself would pray, right, we'll be heard. We'll be heard. Right? When we pray the prayers outlined in the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught us, we pray for God's name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come and his will to be done and for the forgiveness of sins and for daily bread and for deliverance from evil. You can be assured God hears those prayers. The Father will answer and give whatever is asked in the Son's name. Not in our own name, but in the Son's name. And Jesus says, look, I don't have to, in this situation, I don't have to persuade. Like, I don't have to twist the arm of the Father he says, the Father loves you because you love the Son. That's in verse 27. Why are your prayers heard now? Because you share in the Son's sonship. 
That's why the Father loves you. You love Jesus, and he loves Jesus. And so he loves you. And so this, then, is a time of joy in which we have access to God. And how is that access demonstrated, then, Jesus thinks? He says it's demonstrated by bold, Christ-centered praying. Prayer which comes to the Father in the name of Jesus. Not in our own name, but in his name. Jesus says at the end of verse 24 that he will give you these things so that your joy might be complete. There it is again. Even in the midst of a discussion on prayer, he comes back to this theme of joy. It's the Father's purpose in answering your prayers offered in Jesus' name to fill you up, to bring your joy to maturity. Remember back in chapter 15, the last chapter, a few weeks ago we looked at this. Jesus says of this whole discourse, he says, these things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Right? Jesus' joy is the joy of resurrection. So at least three times in this discourse, he has said expressly to us, I am telling you these things because I am seeking, I am earnest about, I desire your joy. I desire you to have fullness of gladness because And that fullness, by the way, is not little packets, right? Jesus does not send us little packets of joy. He says, I want my joy to be in you. I want you to share in the joy that I have. And so the resurrection and ascension is now a public order of joy for us. But, you know, when you look at the way the text flows, this joy needs to be maintained or strengthened. You need to swim in the river of joy. And if you ask yourself, well, how do I swim in this river of joy? Well, the answer is prayer. Christ-centered, biblical prayer is the path to filling out or partaking of joy. Have you ever thought of prayer that way? Just look at the way the text moves. I'm going to fill you up with joy, and then you're going to ask in, in my of the Father in my name, and as you receive, your joy is going to be filled out and made full. Part of the reason we pray is so that we can have communion with God and align ourselves with his glory and his purposes and thus be filled up with joy. God does not need our prayers. We certainly are not praying to inform him. We're certainly not praying because the triumph of things is in doubt. We're praying to commune with God and have our joy filled up. So finally, the last point here is is, uh, victory. The disciples are, are happy in verse 29 that Jesus is now speaking clearly without figures of speech. They make a little confession in verse 30. They say this, now we can see you know all things. This makes us believe that you came from God. It's as if at this very late hour they're saying, Lord... We think we're finally starting to get this. Right? We, think, we think we finally got it. We believe that you've come from God. And Jesus says, guys, that's a beautiful testimony. No, Jesus does not talk like that. 
Right. He doesn't say that. Right? He's going to rain on their little self-issued report card. He knows, and he now will remind them that the grief at hand is going to exact a price. Going to exact a price. You know, it's, it's very interesting. Jesus says, you have come to know that I am from God. And then they say, you're right, Lord. We have. We've come to know that you are from God. And then Jesus says, have you really? That's what actually happens here. He says, do you now believe? You know what that is? That's irony. But it's also irony mixed with sadness. They just made a confession that they believe that he came from God. He says, do you now believe? Then he reminds them of the beginning of the discourse. He says, a time is coming and in fact has come. The birth pangs are upon you. Right? You're going to be scattered each to your own home. Right? It's not just going to be Judas who betrays me or Peter who betrays me. The shepherd will be struck and all the sheep not yet ready to stand are going to be scattered. That's quite a down to bringing down to earth part of the discourse after all this joy stuff. And then Jesus says, I've told you these things so that in me you might have peace. It's as if he said to you, look, you're going to go out this week and fail miserably. That's why next week when we come back here, we're going to start with a confession of sins at the front. Right? We're assuming everyone's going to go out and fail pretty badly. And, I, and, and then Jesus tells you these things so that you can have peace. So that you can know his reconciling grace before. It's amazing, right? Here's the gospel. Jesus pronounces his benediction of peace upon them before they sin. Before they go out and betray him. It's beautiful because he's assuming their restoration. In this world, you'll have trouble or woes. There are two spheres of existence for Jesus. One is in me and the other is in the world. In Jesus, that's the sphere of peace. In the world is the sphere of trouble. And the Christian lives in both spheres. But the taproot, right, the mystery of our life is the in Christ part, in me. The world will be the world. It will do what it does. But it won't prevail, Jesus says. And he closes with this. Take heart. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I am the victor. I am already triumphant. He speaks in the past tense. It's astonishing. He has not yet gone out to be arrested. He has not yet sweat drops of blood. He has not yet prayed three times for the Father to take the cup from him. And he declares not only that he will prevail, but that he has already prevailed. It's astonishing. I mean... I saw a little bit this, this, uh, this week that reminded me. If, if you're a Jets fan, you remember in the, I think it was, was it 69 when they won the Super Bowl with Joe Namath. And he guaranteed a win the whole week before the game. Boldly said, well, when they were big underdogs in the game. I think it's Super Bowl three, And no one thought they could win. Right? And Namath all week long laying around the pool in Miami just declared that, of course, we're going to win. 
of course we're going to win. There's that iconic moment, the only iconic moment, I think, in history, if you're a Jets fan, where Namath walks off the field after winning the Super Bowl with his finger like this. Right? But Jesus is not simply declaring that he's going to win. Right? Imagine if Namath was laying around the pool saying, the game's already over, we've already won. 16 to 7. That's what Jesus is saying. Take courage. I have overcome the world. And he's saying that before the arrest. Before the arrest. I destroy death. I judge and I cast out the prince of the world. I render impotent the world's deceits and its onslaughts. I have conquered. I have already conquered by being conquered. Right here in this room on Passover night. And the signs of that conquest are the joy and peace spoken of in this text, right, which he bestows. These are tokens of his resurrection victory. So two, two quick points in conclusion, one on prayer and one on joy. First, it's a very simple point. The resurrection enables prayer. We ought to connect these two things in our minds. Because Jesus connects them in this, in this text. Think of the men here. They are in many ways discredited. They're without any solid faith. They're without courage. They're without enduring virtue. It is the glory of Christianity that it is built on discredited people. But the resurrection shows that God doesn't treat us or them as we deserve, right? Right? He makes them his family. He makes them the nucleus, the foundation of the church. He loves them. He loves you. And he loves you because by his grace you love the son. The father loves you because you love his son. And now you can approach the father in a bold, unprecedented way. I just want to encourage you, don't take this for granted. It's your highest privilege in life. It's a sort of a foretaste of eternal communion, of the beatific or the beautiful or the happy vision of God. You know, when you pray and you present the name, the character, the authority of Jesus, you not only satisfy the Father when you present that name, you delight the Father when you present that name. And then he's moved to pour out his good gifts. Do that. Pray that way and your joy will be full. Secondly, a a word about joy. The same John tells us in his first letter, this is the victory which has overcome the world. By the way, this this is your version of doing what Jesus does in this text. John says, this is the victory which has already overcome the world. Your faith. Faith is you by the pool in Miami saying, we've already won the Super Bowl. In the midst of this life, in the midst of its trauma, in the midst of its heartache, faith is the sign of your conquest. This is the victory. Greater, that same John says, is the one who's in you than the one who is in the world. And this is why we have joy in the teeth of the world's hostility. Again, the one thing that I think would happen to us that this text 
seeks is that resurrection looks really, really big to you. And the enemies and the sorrows of the world look small. We get engulfed by things, right? And the resurrection seems really small and really far away and really impotent and we're overwhelmed. And Jesus is trying to invert that perspective and say those things are are engulfed, right? In my resurrection glory. The joy in the text is not natural. It's supernatural. And it's resurrection joy. It doesn't depend on the things we normally think it depends on. Christianity has been eradicated in parts of the earth. Our elites despise it. Our civilization's abandoning it. Our own lives, our own families bear the marks of sin and fallenness. No one is minimizing any of this. And yet Jesus says, take heart, be of good cheer. In the world you'll have trouble, but I've overcome not some things, not parts of the world, but the world in its totality. That's the resurrection announcement. And it's the source of our joy. And we come here week after week after week to get the proportion right. And it's to suffering Christians, Christians who are afflicted, that this same Peter, who here is among the scattered betrayers, would write, and we, we heard this in the New Testament lesson. He says this, just a couple decades after this, the same confused and cowardly man writes to the scattered Christians and says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. He's writing to the early Christian community, some of whom have been jailed, others of whom have lost their property. They're being harassed and afflicted all across Asia Minor. And he says, you not only believe in him, you rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and full of glory. That's the abiding joy of this text. It's a kind of protest when you think about it, is it not? It's a kind of Christian protest against the status quo. We refuse to let misery, death, sin, brokenness, social and political corruption, we refuse to let them have the last word. We rejoice because Jesus is risen. It's an act of subversion. It's an act of defiant protest. That joy springs eternal. It cannot be taken away, but it should not be taken for granted. You have to repair to Jesus in prayer. You have to drink and seek and stand in this joy. And you know how important it is? Peter says to those same Christians, by doing this, by rejoicing with joy full of glory, he says you obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So I charge you, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Amen. Amen.